Hi, this is Dr. Ali Sharma. Before we begin our interview with Mia, I wanted to provide my perspective on why we are launching this today. I've been working with my co-host, Bridget Malcolm, since July 2019 on the development of this podcast, which we were supposed to launch in March 2020. However, given the COVID-19 pandemic, we went on pause. And what I witnessed as a psychiatrist and fellow human, alongside the immense grief, loss, and effects of COVID-19 and many other relevant current events, is that mental health is quickly being destigmatized. There has been a call to action for mental health in a way that I have not witnessed to date. I have always been fighting the fight, and now I see others joining in that. And although our podcast focuses on interviewing models within the fashion industry, there are themes in each interview which are universal, which is why we've decided to launch now. As you will hear in Mia's story, she has struggled with eating habits from a young age and has found coping mechanisms which more recently have kept her in balance. However, during the quarantine of COVID-19, those coping mechanisms were not possible and she felt triggered. This is a common theme that I've heard through these past months. Our usual habits, such as hanging out with friends and family, commuting to work, having close human touch and contact, physical activity, and social connectedness are protective for mental health and have been disrupted. Physical distancing, loss of life due to this virus, and economic hardship have challenged our sensibilities and have impacted our mental health. Therefore, it's important that we continue to tell these stories where they are relatable and relevant. And it's more important than ever to encourage others to get connected or stay connected to mental health care. Mia's story is one story of so many, and I so appreciate her taking the time to speak with us and advocating for mental health. Please note that the contents of Model Mentality are for informational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding your condition. Never disregard professional advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on Model Mentality. Hi, I'm Dr. Ali Sharma, a psychiatrist and mental health advocate. And I'm Bridget Malcolm, an international fashion model. And this is Model Mentality. We created this podcast to open up the dialogue about mental health in the fashion industry by exploring the lives of models through the lens of their personal mental health experience. Each episode, we will invite a leading fashion model to sit down to chat, going behind the visual imagery and what you may know of their external life to take a deeper dive into who is actually behind the mask and at the real struggles these models have faced. And in our Let's Get Clinical segment, I'll explore connecting the dots between our guests' personal stories and the larger mental health context. Because at the end of the day, we are all human and our struggles are universal. Hit the subscribe button on the podcast and tell all your friends about Model Mentality. Please note this podcast is strictly for educational purposes only, and please consult your own provider for any mental health issues you may be facing. Today on the podcast, we are talking to Mia Kang. Mia is a model of Korean and British descent who launched her career in Hong Kong at the age of 13 and has since travelled the world working with the industry's top photographers, brands and magazines such as Sports Illustrated and Guess. Mia holds a master's degree in finance and financial law from the University of London and when Mia isn't in front of a camera, she can be found perfecting her sport as a Muay Thai fighter with some of the world's top trainers. 
it is her mission to prove that it is not about size, but rather about strength, intelligence, and confidence. Having grown up bullied and overweight, Mia has struggled with eating disorder symptoms since her early teens, and more recently, through the incorporation of the sport of Muay Thai, in which she has competed professionally in her daily life, she has found a way to cope and gain control over her struggles. Now, healthy and happy, her true passion is to help other women who struggle with similar issues by acting as an advocate for healthy body image, anti-bullying, fitness, and female empowerment. All right. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you um, for having off, me. Wait, yes. Um, where did you grow up? Uh, I was born and raised in Hong Kong, but I am half South Korean, half British. Oh, cool. Um, and what did you want to be before you started modeling? Like, What did you want to be when you were young? Um, I went through a bunch of different phases, but I, I wanted to work in finance. I really, um, I really enjoyed studying it through school and I really wanted to work in some aspect of finance. Super nerd. <laughs> that is, we've had, a, yeah, we've had a lot of answers for this question and I've never heard that one. <laughs> Respect. Um, so tell me, walk us through how you got scouted and your move to New York City because you live there right now, I right? I do, yes. Um, so yes. I got scouted when I was 13 years old and actually I grew up super overweight and um, like I was a bully kid in school and I, um, when I was 13, I developed eating disorders And I like pretty much halved my body weight. I got really skinny and I did these dance lessons every Wednesday. And my dance teacher, um, scouted me and she had a friend who had an agency and she said, you know, that I should go in. And I went in and I think I booked my first job a couple days later. Um, and that was that it was honestly, it was honestly that simple. I had no idea what I was doing. I was just showing up to shoots and castings. I was 13. Um, and then I worked kind of through school, when I could. And then I went international. I did Asia, um, taking, you know, three month contracts here and there. And then I went out to Europe. I based myself in London for seven years, um, and then came back to Hong Kong for a bit. And then I started booking jobs in the States. I started doing direct bookings in the States. And, um, you know, it was kind of the one place that I'd never worked yet. And I've been doing this for a minute. And I thought, you know, from booking jobs, and I don't even have an agency. Let's try to get an agency. Um, so got an agency and moved out to New York. And then the first job that I booked in New York was Sports Illustrated Swimsuit. So then I was like, well, I'm staying. (laughs) (laughs) That's impressive. So then, yeah, that's how I I got to the States. And then, um, you know, and then it kind of went on from there. I, 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 you know, I did Sports Illustrated and I started working in the States and then I kind of hit rock bottom in terms of, um, eating disorders and, and mental health and that sort of thing. So I took a break. Um, and I went to Thailand to try and get away from everything and just kind of normalize and be human and not worry about what I look like and what my measurements are. Um, and then I ended up finding Muay Thai and, you know, getting really active into sports. And then I recovered from my, well, began recovery from my eating disorders. I gained a bunch of weight. I got healthy. And then I came back to the States and, kind of advocated that a change needs to be made in the industry um and we should be having healthy happy confident women in our advertisements not not um you know the the unhealthy insecure um women that unfortunately the industry turns us into Mm -hmm. it's like the body ideal that the industry champions and there's a place 
I mean, there's a place for women who are naturally small, but there should also be a place for every other size Absolutely. on the planet. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so what advice would you want to give a uh, new face model, Mia? So I guess you, when you were struggling with eating and you were underweight and unhealthy. and I would yeah, tell how- myself to stop trying to fit in. I really, honestly, mm-hmm. I remember thinking that there was just one cookie cutter mold of what a beautiful woman is. Um, and, you know, that was the measurements that agencies told us that are the ideal measurements and, you know, that models should be quiet and it's kind of what you look like and then what you say doesn't matter. I wish that I'd just stop trying to fit into any kind of mold and I just focused on being me and discovering who I really am and kind of um, letting that woman flourish. Mm, I love that. Um, How has your identity, how's your relationship to your identity as a model changed from the beginning of your career to now? Um, I think that when I started, I think that I would, being a model was a certain type of, was, was a box. Like there was a box that you had to fit into. Whereas now I think um, being a model is anything you want it to be. And, and for me, I think that being a model is my job. That's not who I am. Where, where I was younger, I really thought that that's who I am. Um, if that makes any kind of sense. Like now I think that modeling is something that I do and it's how I make my money and it's my career, but it's not at all who I am as a person. And I think that the industry is, you know, there's been some real pioneers in this industry that have, that have helped us break those doors down. And I think social media really helps because it's our own platform that we can show our personalities and who we really are. And, um, yeah, I think that that's, it's really evolved over the years for sure. I can definitely, yeah, I can attest to that. It's like when I was super, super young, like my modeling was who I was and I didn't realize, I didn't even realize that I had adopted that as a personality trait. Um, but then like when I hit also hit my rock bottom and began to remove myself from my job and got healthy, I realized that it's, it's simply a job and the most successful girls are, and boys are the ones who treat it solely as a way to make money, not as an a crutch to identify themselves. Absolutely. As absolutely. That was so well yeah. said. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> as a new face, what surprised you the most about the modeling world? Ooh. Um, first of all, I'm like rewind back all those years. Um, I think, um, what surprised me the most was probably how unglamorous it was. I think from the outside, especially as like a young, impressionable teenager, I'd be, you know, looking through these magazines and seeing these supermodels and you, you really think that it's a lifestyle and and an attitude and they're just gorgeous and they must be so confident. And, and then you get there and then you realize models are probably the most, we're probably the most insecure people in the world and we survive off of validation 24 seven. Yes. Um, and we, it is not private jets and champagnes and, and, you know, it's castings and standing in lines with 200 other girls. And it's just, it's not glamorous at all. It's actually very hard work and, and it's emotionally so taxing. I think that was the biggest shock for me. I thought that I was going to be living one life when the reality was another. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That is definitely true. Definitely. 
I, I think I, I peaked with jobs when I was 15. I think I shot a Harper's Bazaar editorial at the Bulgari Resort in Bali and it was a Bulgari story and we stayed at the resort and it was ridiculous. And I remember I was 15 and I was like, right, so this is what modelling's like. I can get on board with this. <laughs> and then it was like crushed after that. I was like, oh, this is, that was as good as it gets. Right, right on. Right. <laughs> um, I I absolutely love your presence on social media. Like I love it. I think it's so refreshing, so important, so powerful. Thank you. Yeah. How do you deal emotionally with the abuse and the trolls? And oh God. All of um, I don't deal with it. I don't know. I, I don't think <laughs> that I deal with it very well. Um, I have a hard time letting people, I have a hard time ignoring, put it that way. Um, I just feel like you cannot walk the face of this earth saying these things and acting this way. So I feel the need to, to, um, to say something, but I've, I mean, I've started, I started putting these people on blast. I've started, um, screenshotting and putting them on my stories to make examples of them. Um, because a lot of people are just hiding behind these profiles and these screens and they think that they can get away with these things. And, and I feel like exposing them embarrasses them um, because you wouldn't say this to me in public. You wouldn't say this to me in my face. So I don't think that, that it should be any different on my social media platform. I also um, really own my space. And I think that the space that I occupy is my space and I control what happens in there. And I have a zero, zero tolerance policy for any kind of cyber bullying. I was bullied as a kid. I don't, I think it's the same thing. It's just on our phones. Um, and I delete any bad comments. I think the greatest privilege that we have is to block people. I love blocking people. Um, it's so satisfying. Um, I think that having time away from social media is also really important. Um, I think that it is, although there are some really great aspects to it, I think that it's extremely harmful for our mental health and I can feel myself daily multiple times a day getting really sucked in and I have to put my phone down and step away from my phone entirely um it's just really about kind of knowing everybody's different and I think it's knowing your boundaries and implementing those boundaries and enforcing them and making sure that they're not crossed and then when they are crossed it's you know managing yourself and how to how to take care of yourself to bring yourself back up um, because these mm. people really do affect you. And I'm, you know, especially now with this coronavirus stuff, I've been getting a shocking amount of hate messages, um, racist messages, and they just come back to back. They don't stop. They're just back to back. And I've, I've really had to learn. I've never experienced so, such racism before in my life. And so it's a new feeling for me. It's a completely new territory. And i I've, I've had to really learn how to manage myself and how to, you know, just reallocate my boundaries and, and step away from my phone a lot, you know, sometimes it's after two minutes, but it's, if, <laughs> imagine if these people came to you face to face, you woke up in the morning, you opened your front door and one by one, they just came and hurled abuse at you. Yeah. You would be absolutely miserable. You would be depressed. It's, it's exactly the same on your phone, people think, people just say, ignore it. It's so easy to say, just ignore them, ignore the haters, ignore the trolls. It's, it's not that easy because when you read something, it's already penetrated your, your energy. You know, it's already, you've read it. You can't unread it. Um, so I had a, I've been, I'm still learning. I'm, I'm learning every day. I'm still learning how to manage that, but it's not an easy thing to do at all for anybody. For me, I have a question. This is Dr. Ali. So 
on this and we'll probably get more into this later. Um, it sounds like the volume and the intensity is overwhelming. Is it happening like 24 seven to you? Yeah. Okay. 24 seven. Yeah. I'd say. <laughs> no, and, and are you saying that in the COVID-19 era, because of what you're posting, that you're getting more. Um, yeah, yeah. So what, what is the quality? I of the was, comments? I, I was explaining, um, earlier that I've been tracked since January because it hit Hong Kong really early on and I'm born and raised in Hong Kong and I've got family there. Um, and so since January, I've been kind of tracking this thing and we've gone through stars and I kind of knew or knew that it was going to turn into something this big. And so I'd been posting, um, data facts, uh, really just, uh, you know, statistics and information, sharing information. Um, and I think that especially the American public wasn't aware of it, um, didn't trust it and, um, rejected it. And I think there was, there was a huge emotional, um, uh, reaction from the people that, that they rejected to acknowledge a, this disease and B, the severity of this disease. Um, and then of course it went very quickly to racial. Um, and that really, I think it's, it stopped, it slowed down for me now, I think because it finally is very severe in all around the world and people are kind of shutting up. Um, but also I have made it clear to people, to my followers that if you, you know, if you, are racist or xenophobic in any way, just unfollow me because I, I won't have any tolerance for these comments. I delete all the comments. I block all these people. Um, I need to control my space and my own mental health and reading these things isn't good for me. So, um, I choose to just erase it. Yeah. That is such a hard thing to do. I've, I've so much respect for you. Like I, I've gone through phases, not, not obviously nothing anywhere near as intense as what you're dealing with right now. But, um, I've had phases where I've gotten a lot of heat online from people and it's it cuts you in a really strange way. Like I'm fortunate that I was never bullied in school and, you know, but it's it it, it gets in and because I guess because it's on your phone, which is supposed to be like an extension, well, not supposed to be, but it is essentially an extension of you. It's like your personal thing and then there's just hate coming through it. It's really hard and for me it's like, you know, I feel very proud and privileged to have a platform online and I want to use it mindfully and to raise awareness about the right things. But even with the Australian bushfires, like I recorded a short video just like asking for people to please donate and I got so much vitriol from people on there and I was just like, I, you can't win. You cannot it's win. Like, yeah. I I've, I very much respect you like choosing your space and being like, no, this is where I, I'm allowed to be here. I have every right to this. And Mad I think that, uh, thank you. I, I, but I do think that the, um, social media has, it's, there's two sides to this coin because it's given us a space to voice our opinions and our beliefs and our thoughts and create these, these, these individual platforms. But at the same time, you, you don't want to, everybody has different beliefs and we have to accept that. And we have to learn that mm. when you see something that doesn't match your belief system, you have to keep scrolling. You know, you can't, <laughs> you can't stop at every person that, that believes, you know, it's crazy that I get messages saying we shouldn't be concentrating on, on COVID-19 right now. We should be fighting climate change. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just, that's what you think 
it doesn't need to mean that you need to convince me that that's what I need to be thinking. Do you know what I mean? I think that we all need to respect each other's little property and little space that they occupy on social media a little bit more. Absolutely. And just because like someone focuses on one thing doesn't mean the other, another thing isn't as important. Absolutely. You can care about more than one thing at a time. Absolutely. Um, So I have two more questions. Um, First off, I I wanted to talk about Muay Thai and the role that that has in your life and in your recovery. Because it seems like I'd love to hear you talk more about like what drew you to the sport and what do you love about it and what keeps you coming back? Absolutely. Um, So yeah, I, I explained a little earlier that I, um, I took a break probably at the peak of my modeling career when I was 27 and I was living in New York and I, you know, I just done my first issue of Sports Illustrated. I've been doing guest campaigns and all this stuff. And I was mentally and physically just at rock bottom. Um, A client of mine asked me to basically fast for 10 days before a shoot to really shrink down to as small as I could get um, because they didn't think that I was in the best shape. And, uh, unfortunately in our industry, as you know, that's a pretty, that's a normal request to ask. So, yep. mm-hmm. um, I, 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 when my agent called me, I just broke down and I was like, I can't do this anymore. I'm 27. Everybody wants me to look like how I looked when I was 17. My body literally cannot do this anymore. I'm going to do it. But after this, I need a break. So I booked a 10, vi- 10 day vacation to Thailand, which was like as far away as from New York as I thought I could get. Um, and I was driving down the road and I drove past a roadside gym. Um, and I drove past a couple of times and I kind of like slowed down the car and I was looking, um, and one day I parked the car and I stopped and I was watching these little boys, like eight years old, nine years old, 10 years old, um, sparring in the ring and training. And I was, I just thought it was so beautiful. Um, I was mesmerized. And so, Eventually I built up the courage to walk in and give it a go. Um, and then I came back every day and then I came back twice a day. And then that 10 day vacation turned into nine months. I moved into the gym. I lived there. I, you know, ended up deciding I wanted to take a professional fight. I, um, and over that time I got healthy. I, trained with these guys. I ate with these guys. They taught me the basics about food, um, that I didn't even know because I always associated food with a, um, reward for starvation. You know, since I was 13, I'd been a model and that's what I thought that food was. And they taught me that food was fuel for your body. And they taught me how to respect your body. Um, doing Muay Thai showed me just a little bit of what I'm capable of. Like I never had run a mile before. I'd never done a push up. I had never done these things. I thought I couldn't do them. I thought different people, you know, some people are athletes, some people aren't, I'm not. Um, and I was doing these things that I never imagined that I thought I could do. And, um, it really ultimately taught me how to respect myself and kind of open that door. And I think when you begin to respect yourself, that's when, self-love and you know that's when you really start to face your eating disorders and things like that head on because you know that you deserve better Mm -hmm. again I I relate so strongly to everything you're saying when I was my eating disorder I I couldn't exercise I would like pretend you know for the Instagram but like I I was so dead like physically mentally just like shot that the idea of doing anything was just insane and then as I got healthy and got better I've never tried Muay Thai I've loved boxing though for a long time and like doing sparring and proper like proper fighting um 
gosh, it's it's so empowering and it's it so is. cool to realize that like you can't work out as well as you'd like to if you haven't eaten enough. Absolutely. It's like it's just a simple fact and it's like yeah, it's it's super cool. It's I love I love how much that's like affected your sense of body awareness and strength. It's I think it's so important. I think like a, a really big thing about the fighting kind of like combat element of it too is confidence. And you know, when you spar or when you go you when you face like another opponent in anything, you're you're never gonna win or you're never gonna get very far unless you have confidence. And I think that the the sport also taught me about that because as models, we seem confident and we might look confident and we seem beautiful, but we're so riddled with insecurities and criticism and, and, you know, all this stuff that there's actually, I think, very little confidence there. And I think this sport, this sport brought out, um, you know, confidence and, and really distinguished between confidence and ego. And, and it, it, it teaches me a lot. It definitely does on, on a daily basis. I think every day that I train, I, I learn something a little bit more, about myself that I can kind of take out into the real world um, on an everyday basis. I love that. Yeah, it's like models are existed to be blank canvases for other people's projections to be projected on. And so, like, I, I've, I've definitely been struggling with a lack of a sense of self as I've gotten older because I'm like, I don't know what I want, who I want to be or how I want to be. Mm-hmm. But it's like if you're in a ring with someone and they're throwing punches at you, like, it's kind of fun to learn to take a punch or to, like, react and then act and react and it's like I don't know it's it's cool it's it's nice to know that you're more than just your exterior Um, absolutely final question if you had 50 million Instagram followers what would you want to tell them about mental health um I think that it's really important especially on social media to for people to know that mental health is not a final destination um I think a lot of people seem to think that it's, you know, that you're either healthy or mentally healthy or you're mentally unhealthy. And I think it's important to show that mental health is a journey and it's a continuous journey. And it's a journey that we're, we're on for the rest of our lives together. Um, and you have good days and bad days and you have, you know, you take two steps forward, one step back, but, um, you've got to put, keep putting one foot in front of the other. And I think that it's important to let people know, um, that it is essentially a journey and it's important to let people know as well when you take your steps back because especially on social media where everything seems perfect and everybody seems like they've got their shit together and everybody seems happy 24 hours a day, it's important to show when you fall. It's important to show when you take a step back. Um, And I actually think that I'd do that if I had 50 million followers or if I had five followers. But, um, yeah, I think that's something super necessary on social media I, today. I agree with you. It's where humans exist in all kinds of like places of emotions and it's not, doesn't really do anyone any favors to pretend otherwise. Um, all right. Open exactly. the back to Ali. All right, Mia. So it's so lovely to meet you virtually and thank you so much for coming onto our podcast. No problem. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. So first, I, I've, I've heard in your interview with Bridget glimpses of the answer to this, but I'd love to hear from you why the topic of mental health is important to you and why it was of interest to come onto our podcast. Um, mental health is something that I realized very later on in my life. I think when I was 27, I realized that it was a thing. <laughs> and um, I really wish that I'd, I had taken better care of myself when I was younger. Um, I think modeling made me so focused on the physical 
um, that I put, I didn't even consider my mental health really until I absolutely hit rock bottom. Um, and it took me that to realize that I need to take care of my own mental health. And, and I think that, um, I strongly, strongly advocate, um, in people taking care of their mental health now because of the things that I've been through. So let's first go back to earlier in your childhood. And I read in one of the articles about you that said that you were overweight as a child and it led to you being bullied. Could you tell us a little bit more about that time in your life? Sure. Um, I was, I grew up in a very difficult household. Um, I didn't have a very traditional family and my parents were, um, not very present and they were very preoccupied with their own issues that they had going on in in their own lives, uh, and in their relationship. And I definitely took to eating to fill an emotional void and it brought me happiness that I wasn't getting in other places. Um, and I was then, you know, bullied and I always felt different because of my weight, because of my race, even because I grew up in Hong Kong and, you know, there were Asian kids and there were Caucasian kids and I was mixed and I didn't quite know where I fit in. And I just, I always felt different and I always felt like I didn't fit in. Um, and it was always, I I feel like I spent so much of my early life just trying to fit in and in any kind of aspect in school. And, you know, even in modeling, I was just trying to look like how models are supposed to look. And I just, I felt like I've just spent so much energy in my life trying to fit in. Um, and then when I was 13, um, I, you know, was told by my GP that I should probably lose weight because, you know, there's things like diabetes and, and heart disease and things like that, that can result from being overweight. And so I didn't know what to do and I didn't have any guidance or any information or any education in this, in this field. And so I just stopped eating and I saw that that made the number on the scale go down. So I developed anorexia very young. Um, and I lost a lot of weight. I lost like 30 kilos or something, um, wow, over maybe what a bit more, time? a couple months, really nothing oh. like within six months. And I, um, you know, I would, I was, nobody noticed as well because, because I was, I loved, because I was bullied, I'd kind of learned to remain invisible, um, mm-hmm. in school. Like I would, I remember going through lunch breaks. I would go to the library, find a corner and I would sleep because I was so exhausted and I had no food and I just didn't want to see people and deal with harassment or deal with anything, deal with feeling invisible, deal with feeling isolated. Um, and at home, the same thing, I would kind of just go to my room and lay under the radar and I lost a lot of weight and I got scouted as a model immediately. And I just watched how the world treated me different. I was the same person over a number of months and the world was treating me completely differently because of a number on a scale, essentially. Mm. And I, it took me a while to wrap my head around it. Um, and then also to adjust because then I was this person who was getting all this attention and I was on billboards and, you know, boys wanted to date me. And then, and it was dealing with that and dealing with, you know, is this real or is it superficial and, you know, confidence versus ego and learning these things as a teenager um, so could I ask you something though on that? It's yeah, interesting, right? Sure. Because how, so you said it was 13, you were 13 when you went to the doctor. And so yes. what about hearing that news? Right. Cause I think that was the potential for type two diabetes. 
What about that was motivating for you? Because other people might not have been motivated by that to lose weight. I think I'm very, uh, my dad is a, is a, like a theoretical physicist and he's very science-based and our household is very like science and facts-based. And I think that's kind of how I was raised is very like, he is an expert and that is the authority and these are the facts. And I think that, that personally resonated with me. Um, and so, you know, somebody might in school might call me fat, but that won't hit the same as if a doctor says, listen, you're overweight. These are the facts. So that, I think that's what it was. It was like that authority kind of figure. Okay. And all the bullying that you experienced, just looking back on it from where you are now, because I know you mentioned the cyber bullying, right? As a mm-hmm. similar, but different type of experience. You know, when you were younger, that's a tough age, right? Those are developmental years that you experienced that. So how are you coping with it at the time from what you recall? Um, I remember, I remember getting upset and, you know, talking back. I remember a couple episodes where I would, you know, insult the person back. Um, and it still didn't make me feel better. And I remember learning that, that, you know, when somebody cuts you, if you cut them back, it doesn't heal your cut. It doesn't make you feel any better. So I remember telling myself that it, it doesn't matter. Like it does what you say, your react, just don't react, just be invisible. That was my approach. It was the more invisible you are, the, the less attention you get, the less, you know, energy you're going to have to expend on this. Yes, you're getting cut, but kind of focus that energy on healing those cuts. Um, I remember deciding that just stay away from people. It's, it's inevitable. I couldn't fit in with them. I couldn't be their friend. I couldn't get them to like me. So just stay away from them because it's, I kind of felt like it's, it's going to exist. I can't change them, you know? Mm. Um, but I can't ignore them and I can't stay away from them. Yes. But that is quite a change, right? From being invisible to being fully visible, especially in the physical yes. realm. So, yes. so it sounds like your, your weight dropped significantly. You were scouted to model. Then what happened in terms of the weight issue when you first started modeling, let's say in the first year? I honestly didn't understand what, uh, what I'd gotten myself into in terms of eating disorder. I really, um, I thought honestly that I was on a crash diet. I thought that not, I would just not eat for this certain period of time. I would get down to a goal weight and then I could just eat again and be normal. I really thought that it was a crash diet. I didn't realize that I had destroyed my metabolism, that I had developed this incredibly complex psychological disorder. Mm -hmm. Um, So I remember, you know, I was modeling. I got a boyfriend. I had some friends. My whole life kind of turned around. And I remember that point where I said, you know what? I think that I've gotten to where I want to be and I want to enjoy some food. And I remember getting my mom to drive me to 7-Eleven and I just raided the shelves. I, I bought every snack that I had ever craved for over the last six months. And I sat in front of a mirror, weirdly enough, because it brought me gratification to sit in front of a mirror and watch myself eat. And I ate every single snack, every bag of chips, every chocolate bar, every pack, every, every single thing I just binged. And I remember for the first time feeling that overwhelming guilt and self-loathing and that, oh my God, what have I done? I need to get this out of me, the, 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 that, that panic. Um, and I, I, I remember 
feeling like I was drowning. I didn't realize how deep I'd gotten myself in. I kind of realized that this isn't just a diet and I can't, this is, this is a much bigger issue. Um, and that was the beginning of, of battling this demon. Mm. And were you ever around that time or later officially diagnosed by a healthcare professional with an eating disorder? No. Or, or yeah. So this is something you were managing on your own. Yeah. And I okay. did go at one point I did go to my parents. Um, and I did say, I, I sat them down and I said, I think I have an eating disorder. I think I was 15 at this time. And they really laughed it off because I didn't look sick and I didn't look, I, I never, you know, if you Google anorexia or you Google, you know, the, the worst case scenario image that we think of in our heads. Um, and I didn't look like her. So my parents didn't take me seriously. They thought that I was just a teenage girl who was self-conscious and it was just regular things because there were no alarm bells were ringing. Do you know what I mean? I wasn't taken to the hospital. I wasn't, you know, severely, I wasn't on the verge of death. I didn't look like that. I was still functioning. And mm. so my parents never took it seriously um, and didn't understand that it's not a physical disease. It's a mental disease. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I dealt with this on my own. Okay. And did anyone, let's say from there through the next 10 years, did anyone else close to you notice that the habits that were manifesting as a result of what's going on in the mind? Yes. I, my family, like my sisters, I remember having, you know, going to visit my sister. She lives in Switzerland and her kids and, um, sitting at the dinner table and I just squirted some ketchup on my plate and just ate the ketchup. That was it. And I remember my, my sister freaking out and her husband was trying to calm her down and, you know, saying, don't say anything. People definitely noticed and it, and it became a thing. But again, because I modeled, everybody just assumed I'm watching my weight for modeling. Mm. I'm just watching my weight. I must have a shoot coming up. It's okay. It was allowed because this is what I signed up for essentially. Um, and it was very tolerated. It was kind of like, your job is to watch your weight and to look a certain way. So do what you got to do. Um, and I think that I also had a cousin, um, who unfortunately, uh, she had bulimia and she passed away. Um, and mm. she was alarmingly thin and she, you know, she was, she was the extreme that, 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 that we do see. And I, you know, I remember my dad, looking at her as somebody who really needs, you know, medical attention and, and assistance and, and intervention. Whereas I was just, I was just a less severe, less alarm. I wasn't to be taken seriously kind of thing. Mm, but for you, did her illness, did that have an impact on your and influence you in any way? Uh, yeah, that, that, it was a wake up call for sure. I remember getting the news that she passed away. She, um, I think she had a, she had a seizure and she, uh, that really kind of showed me that this isn't a game because yeah. I, I kind of toyed with eating disorders and pushed boundaries and limits. And I would go on like Anna and Mia blogs online and look at other girls and see what they were doing and get tips from one another. Um, and it was kind of this game, to, to get the number the lowest, to get your weight the lowest. And it, it's this, it turns into this really sick, complicated, um, almost fun thing. And that really just woke me up. That was, 
the, she was the extreme version that if you keep going on this path, this is, this is an option basically. And um, yeah, that was, it was a very alarming time for me, even though I didn't, I wasn't, she was very, she was bulimic and I dabbled in bulimia and had like phases of bulimia. Um, but still it was, it was very, um, very awakening. Yeah. So for you though, you know, to characterize what you've been going through, um, would you say it was more restriction that has been the pattern related to eating or something else or overcompensation, you know, eating and then overcompensating with other things like exercise Um, or laxatives or, you know, purging at times have gone through probably every, every single one of those. Um, I, it started with the anorexia and it started with, uh, you know, and then I was introduced to the guilt and the self-loathing and how do I manage that? So that turned into binging, right? I would go like four or five days with no food and then I would binge, get an overwhelming sense of self-loathing and then go for another four or five days. And then, um, and then I, you know, started getting into bulimia, um, because I felt like that was the perfect cheating of the system. I thought that I got to eat the food and I didn't get to gain the weight or the calories. So this is just a win-win. And then that started to become not convenient because I would be working or I would be out and I just couldn't be throwing up all the time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so I went through laxatives, um, and then, you know, had many years, uh, with abusing laxatives and I would take, you know, packs and packs of Dulcolax at a time. Um, I remember laying on bathroom floors, overheating, thinking I'm going to die. Um, I couldn't go to the bathroom for years without taking laxatives. Um, and then I was, you know, going on these weird, crazy diets. Like if I did eat, I'd only eat beans and yogurt because those helped me poop because I couldn't without the laxatives. I was just, I felt like I was constantly stuck in these cycles, constantly stuck in these situations. And I, I remember many, many times thinking, Jesus Christ, if I'm going to spend the rest of my life dealing with this overwhelming guilt and self-loathing and feeling trapped in a cycle, I'd rather fall a day. Many times I've gotten to the point where I felt, I really felt like I'm going to tap out because I can't, it's exhausting. It's truly exhausting. Yeah. And you know, Mia, I don't like just for our listeners, cause you know, we hope that young people can learn something from your story, right? You know, obviously there's a, there's the behavior of the erratic eating habits, let's say the ups and downs and then the fluctuations in weight. But, you know, you're describing something about the psychological aspect that it was so difficult. So can you, can you tell like, especially our listeners, like what was happening in your mind? Was it all consuming? Was it just hard to push away? Did you realize it was all consuming? It was entirely all consuming. I think a large part of that also was the modeling um, because, you know, when it's mealtimes or things like that, or you're, or you're hungry and you're faced with food and you deal with those demons then, but then to, you know, for 12 hours a day, you're, I was going to these shoots and these fashion shows and these jobs where I was around all these girls that I was just constantly comparing myself to, um, and, you know, you notice that the skinnier girls book more jobs and this and that. And, you're, and it's just, it was a constant, um, it was really all consuming. And I felt like it was like ever present. It was just all the time. There was no stepping away from it. I felt like there was this like monster that lived inside my head and I couldn't get it to go away. And it was just all the time. Every time I looked at anything, it, it 
had to do with losing or gaining weight. You know, every time I looked at a girl or another human being, or I watched somebody else eat, or I, you know, I look at toothpaste and be like, Oh my God, don't swallow it. Or I would every single, it was just a totally consuming, um, illness that I, I've got overwhelmed by. I really got overwhelmed by. Did it distract you from your modeling career or the work or what you were doing every day? You know, I weirdly used it to, I, uh, I paralleled the two and I used it to fuel my career because I equated one with the other. I thought, you know, the more successful I am in my eating disorder, the more successful I am, I will be as a model. Mm. And, and that you, can be like monetarily defined too. Like I, mm. I really like just paralleled the two. Right. So it's connected with success or an indicator of success. Absolutely. And how do you look at that now from where you are? Uh, what moment? a waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> right. I just, I just wish that I had, uh, oh, I mean, it's partially, I, I just, I wish I had the perspective that I have now. I wish I had the guts that I had now to step away from that earlier. Um, I wish that I stepped out, um, and gotten perspective a little more. Um, because if I could have that time back, um, you know, I would have just saved myself so much grief and so much pain. Yeah. So let's, you know, just, I'd love to hear, cause you said that when you were 27, you realized that mental health was really important. So what was the aha mo- moment or what got you to the aha moment? Um, so I was asked, to, um, basically starve for 10 days before a shoot. Um, and that that's unfortunately, uh, very normal in, in the industry. And when I got the call and, you know, my, my agent told me, you know, the client doesn't think you're really looking your best right now. And if you could just shrink down as much as possible over the next 10 days before the shoot, um, that's what they really want. And I broke down into tears and I'm not normally like that. I've, I've done this for a very long time. I've been, you know, asked to lose weight and, and done this many times. I'm very weathered to this. And this time I broke down and, uh, you know, my agent was asking me what's wrong. And I said, I don't know, but I can't do this anymore. I think that it was a combination of being mentally exhausted and physically my body was rejecting this. I was 27 and they wanted me to look like I looked when I was 17 and my body was literally not having it anymore. Um, at the time I was living in New York and I was very successful as a model from the outside. It looked great. I was at the peak of my career Um, you know, living a certain lifestyle, everything looked great, but I was miserable. I suffered severe social anxiety because I thought that socializing meant consuming food and drinks. Um, and it meant hiding my, my behavior that was exhausting. So I just stayed at home. I smoked a pack of Marlboro Lights a day. Um, I didn't want to see anyone or go anywhere. I would just go to the gym and, and book as many class pass workouts that I could in a day and then go home and, and smoke cigarettes. It was just, it was an awful sight. I was so depressed and I had so much anxiety and, and, um, I agreed to, to, to losing the weight and doing this shoot. And then I said, I'll do it, but I need a 10 day vacation. I need to be booked out and I need to step away for a moment and I need to be human and feel human. And so I booked a plane ticket to Thailand. I went to Thailand, um, which was like the furthest place that I could think of getting from New York. Um, and I, while I was there, 
I, I would often take trips on my, by myself and just eat and cry <laughs> and alone. It's, it sounds crazy, but, but I just needed to feel human and sit and eat and cry. And, um, it sounds I lovely. Was, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, um, now it's just a regular Tuesday for me. No, I was going to say, I've been doing um, that a lot this week. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I, I discovered Muay Thai and then that 10 day vacation mm. turned into nine months of me, um, discovering fitness and on a journey of respecting my body and getting healthy and recovering, learning how to eat. And, um, yeah, I forgot the question. I feel like I really went off on a tangent there. <laughs> no, you, you answered it. I like where it went. So yeah, so speaking of Muay Thai, you mentioned that it helps with confidence. I was also wondering how it impacts you psychologically, especially from what you were just describing, right? About how the eating disorder can consume you psychologically, right? When it's very active. So what, what has it done for you in terms of like the thoughts and the mental effects? Um, I think a very important thing that it's taught me is to be present and really, truly present. And when I'm, when you're standing in front of someone exchanging blows, you're not thinking of anything else other than what is going on and what is your next move, uh, down to the millisecond. And I think that, um, also being treated just like everybody else. I think my, my, since I started modeling, I've always been treated so preciously, and, you know, being in a sport where it doesn't matter your gender or your job or uh, any, nothing really, nothing matters. You're all just, you're all equal. I think that that was a, a really great um, lesson for me. Um, and it taught me a lot about myself. And I, I think really um, with a lot of martial arts, you just learn so much about yourself, you know, like when you get I always say when you get hit in the face that it really shows you what kind of person you are. You know, there are people that curl up in a ball on the floor and get, take the hits. There are people that run and there are people that hit back and you, you learn so much about yourself and, and it's really taught me as well, accountability. This is not a team sport. There's only me in this ring. And if I lose a round or if I get hit, it's nobody's fault, but me and, and, um, having that accountability for my actions and my thoughts and my, and learning to control myself. You're really, you're really on this incredible journey with yourself, um, as you learn martial arts and like, we're all on this journey together and we're all learning from one another. We're all just at different points on the learning curve. Um, it's incredibly humbling and, and teaches me humility every day. You cannot have any ego if you want to do well in this sport. Um, and if you want to continue to learn from people, you can't have ego, um, and yeah, I think it's just, there's so much that I, I learned from it emotionally, mentally, physically, um, that it really, it opened the door for me to be able to work on my healing for sure. Mm -hmm. I, 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 you know, a lot of people need that, that door opening, whether it be, you know, getting help or, or intervention or, or assistance or whatever it may be in, in relative to your situation. But for me, learning Muay Thai opened that door for me to begin my journey healing. So now with Muay Thai in your life, where are you now with the eating issues or body image issues? I, uh, I like to think that I'm well into my recovery. Um, I, have learned to get to know and love and respect my body, 
Um, I've learned to prioritize health over vanity or um, over my insecurities. I think that I continue to practice Muay Thai. I'm also still human and I very often have my days and moments of relapse. Um, I am just like everybody else and have times where my insecurities completely consume me. Um, I have days where I look in the mirror and I hate what I see. I have days where I wake up and I don't even want to get out of bed because I feel unworthy of the outside world. Um, and I think it's important for people to know that any, everybody, everybody, every single person has this, every single person has insecurities. There's not a person in the world that doesn't have insecurities. I think that it's so important to know that your, your insecurities aren't going anywhere. So get to know them, get comfortable with them. Even if these ones go away, they'll be replaced by new ones. I think that we just have to learn to really get to know yourself and respect yourself. And I think once you respect yourself, then you know, you deserve better and you, you, you want to prioritize your own health. If that makes any sense. I feel like I've lost my articulation here. That was incredible. <laughs> it makes perfect sense. As a psychiatrist, especially during this time of COVID-19 and the pandemic, you know, I obviously, I have a practice and I see, I support a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, this pandemic is affecting people in many different ways, as you can understand and would imagine. So mm -hmm. just to hone in on uh, eating disorders, I saw that you mentioned in a recent social media post that being in isolation can be, in a, be a trigger. So my, this two-part question. First question is like, how is this period, this pandemic, how has it been affecting your eating disorder? And second, what would you like to tell others that may be getting triggered? Uh, for me, I've noticed myself being extremely triggered and uh, feeling a, a sense of helplessness because you're confined to a limited space. Uh, your routine is completely thrown out of whack. I cannot eat what the fresh vegetables that I want to. Um, I cannot train how I want to. Gyms are closed. We can't go outside. I, I train in a... Um, you know, you need people to, <laughs> to, to train. It's not a, a thing you can do alone. Um, and I, not being able to have that has made me feel very helpless and, and like, I don't have any control over what's happening. And, you know, I, for myself, that's what I sought after in my eating disorders is that I wanted to get a sense of control and I can feel myself leaning back into, um, old thought patterns, old habits in search of this control. Um, and, you know, for the past week, I went to the hospital eight days ago um, and I got tested for COVID-19. I still don't have the test results. So over the last eight days, I've been recover, I've been resting, I've been in bed, I've been eating whatever I want to. Um, I've just been focusing on, you know, recovery, resting and being happy. And now that I'm feeling better and I'm up and about, I feel softer. I feel, you know, certain things of my, about certain parts of my body that I'm insecure about are now brought to my attention. And I'm, I can feel that regression happening. And I, if I'm feeling it, I know for damn sure, uh, plenty of other people are feeling it too. Um, and so I want to encourage people to take that control in a different way and to 
be your own motivation. Cause I think a lot of us find motivation in a schedule, in a trainer, in a workout class, in a routine. Um, when now is a time for us to start getting creative, to get that motivation in a different way to, to be your own source of motivation. So whether um, it's so great to see what's happening on social media and online and seeing these virtual workout classes, you know, seeing people put, um, you know, recipes on how to make, you know, nutritious meals on barely next to no ingredients. Um, I think that, that we just need to, to look in the right places and we need to stay positive and we need to, you need to be active about that with yourself because now in a time when you're left alone with your own insecurities and you, you, we have too much time with our own thoughts, it's, it can be really damaging. And I think that we have to all make an effort to make sure that we don't fall down that rabbit hole or to pull ourselves out of that rabbit hole when we do. Okay. And so tell us what happened eight days ago that led you, you know, to get the test for COVID-19. Nine days ago, uh, I had, I'd had a little bit of a cough and I immediately went to the doctors, uh, and I had a cough and shortness of breath. It was really the shortness of breath that was, um, that was worrying me. And, uh, I wasn't running a fever and I know, and also I want people to understand that this is a very unpredictable disease. The symptoms are not textbook and they're not the same for everybody. Um, and so I had two symptoms and I went to the doctor immediately and I was diagnosed with bronchitis. They didn't do a COVID test, but he did an x-ray and he examined me and he said, he thinks that it's bacterial and not viral. And he thinks that it's bronchitis. Um, gave me five days of antibiotics. If it doesn't clear up or if anything gets worse, absolutely come back. The next day, which was eight days ago, I was walking on the street. Um, it was hot and I, my shortness of breath got so bad that I started hyperventilating and I got, you know, numbness in my extremities and I collapsed and I was ambulanced to the hospital where they then decided, you know what, we think you're fine, but out of safe measure, we're going to do the test because you qualify for the test. Um, we're going to do it just so that we can rule it out. Um, I then spent two days in isolation, um, and in hospital and I didn't get my results back. I was feeling fine. I wasn't requiring any medical assistance. I didn't need a ventilator. I didn't need any IV. I didn't, I was just alone in a room. So I said to the hospital that I want to sign a waiver and I want to go and do self-isolation at home so that somebody who is critical can take my hospital bed because I don't need it. Ultimately, I don't really need it. I just need the isolation. So I went home and um, since then I have been um, self-isolating and I have not gotten my test results back. And I think that that just goes to show how overwhelmed the medical systems are globally. Um, I think that it's unfortunate because a test taking this long, you know, kind of the test was kind of pointless. Um, mm. I think that uh, one thing that I can know is that, you know, if I did have a severe case of this, I think I would be in the ICU by now. So uh, I'm just going to treat myself like I do have it um, and isolate. Yeah. So when you're in the hospital, right, especially those two days of isolation, tell us a little bit about your stress levels, your thoughts, your emotions, anxiety. Day one was, was honestly amazing. Day one was, was like a vacation. I felt like I was in a spa. 
I was like, I, I felt like I, you know, I had meals delivered to me. I was just watching movies. It was day one was honestly pretty great. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, day two was horrific. Day two, I started going crazy. I, I really wanted the results that, you know, they told me 24 hours, potentially up to 72. Um, I, my anxiety levels got higher. I then, you know, started spiraling about the craziest thing that I started spiraling about what if I don't have it, but I catch it in here. Like I said, you know, I started thinking because mm-hmm. I was in a ward of isolation rooms. So I was like, what if the people in the room next to me and the, I don't know, cross contamination or what if I get it? I, I really started spiraling. And I'm sure everybody is spiraling about this virus because of its um, infectiousness and because of, you know, its characteristics. But um, I got to, I actually think it was, it was two nights, three days. It was the end of the third day that I realized I'm not getting my results anytime soon. I spoke with the doctor and she said, labs are overwhelmed. And we would have normally gotten your results right now, but right now labs are overwhelmed. And I kind of realized that I'm not going to get them back in the next couple of hours. So we need, I need to be a responsible human being and somebody else deserves this bed more than I do. And I'm going to step out. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't too bad. I felt very comforted by the medical staff. They did a great job at making me feel safe and, and, and calm. And how about the symptoms, you know, your shortness of breath and the cough? Has that like, has that gotten better for you? You sound okay. I mean, to be talking. Yes, they, it has gotten much better. Uh, they put me on antiviral. So I was on the anti, uh, I was on the, um, antibiotics and antivirals at the same time. Um, which is great. I think that they should just start medication, you know, not waiting days and days for test results. I think they should just start treating, uh, if the, if the treatments are non-toxic and, um, yeah, I feel great. I don't know what happened. I don't know if I've had it or not, but I feel much better. I have like slight reminiscence of a cough. Um, I never ran a fever. Um, I did feel very tired all the time and I had shortness of breath, but I am feeling much better now. Um, and then now in isolation, it's like, you know, I spend four hours of my day thinking I have coronavirus. And then I spend eight hours of the day having anxiety and thinking that the anxiety is coronavirus. And then, you know, it's, yeah, I'm you're sure not we're, all, that. Yeah. We're, we're all sitting at home spiraling about this, the anxiety, especially like the, the tightness in the chest. I'm like, Oh my God, it's coronavirus. Like it, it's yeah. just, it's, um, it's scary. Yeah. And look, you've said so elegantly that the distraction of something like Muay Thai, right. And the concentration mm-hmm. on something that's really important to you gets you out of your head, so to speak. I'm extrapolating, but absolutely, you know, in that same vein, what what do you find that you can do to fill your time that does distract you from those thoughts and those worries? Um, I have taken an approach to this time, this indefinite period of time. I'm assuming the worst, and I'm assuming, I'm hoping for the best. Assuming the worst, I'm going to assume that this is going to last for months, and. All I want to do is come out of this period of time uh, having developed as a person and having taken a couple steps forward into reaching my potential. So whether that means, you know, creating content for my platform, perhaps setting up an online business, um, 
developing my hobbies and talents that I've neglected because I've prioritized work and other things. Like I love drawing and sketching and painting. I've bought, um, you know, a paint set and a, and a sketchbook and, and I want to get back into that. I want to, you know, I used to be fluent in Korean. I want to pick that up again. Um, I bought Rosetta Stone. I think that it's a great opportunity to develop yourself as a person and kind of focus that energy onto things that we honestly all say we wish we had the time for. And now we have the time. And I think that it's really easy to, to be negative about it. It's really easy to be fearful. It's really easy to let the anxiety consume you, but we have to, again, be your own motivation and consciously catch yourself and consciously, you know, step away from your phone, be present. I've, I'm really not a, um, like one that's into like, breathing and meditation and that kind of stuff, but I'm, I'm trying to do it two minutes a day. You know, I think that Mm. try new things, go to new places. I think that we're, it's a, it's a really interesting time. And I think that we just should really use this time well, um, Mm. and not, and it's all about perspective. It's, I, I've trying to shift my mindset from how are we going to kill this time to how am I going to use this time? You know, it's, it's all about perspective. Absolutely. And, you know, you were obviously forced to social distance because of your symptoms, but you've been in the context where you are. And I know you're very aware given that you live in Asia. So just to clarify, you live in Thailand now, correct? (laughs) No. So I live in New York. (laughs) Oh, you live in New York. I do. I live in New York. Um, and I came to Thailand in the beginning of February for, for, uh, for a trip and to do some training, which has now turned into, um, an, an indefinitely extended holiday, but I've made this decision because I, I don't think it's safe to go back to New York, to, to, um, to Manhattan, to my apartment in Manhattan right now. Um, and I also don't, I think it's very risky to, to get on a, a flight like that too. So I've made the decision to stay here. I've gotten an extension on my visa. Uh, the Thai government has been very accommodating to, um, to foreigners in this, there's many people in this situation that are, that are stuck, you know, let's say for, you know, I don't want to use that term, but yeah, who are kind of stuck. And, um, yeah, so I've had to set up shop here without being at home, which has been very frightening, honestly frightening. Yesterday I had a meltdown about it. I've had to rent a house and just try and create normalcy. And, uh, you know, I was telling Bridget earlier, even little things are really emotionally getting to me right now, like not having, not being in the same time zone as my friends for FaceTimes, um, not having my, my face creams, <laughs> my, 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 my stuff, you know, like my day-to-day stuff that I have in my apartment and I'm having to go to the stores and try and recreate this, this daily life and this normalcy. And, and it's very emotional to not be at home or in a home situation through this time, but we're making it work. Yeah. And look, I mean, your routine is entirely disrupted. And I think one of the things that people need to do, I think during this time, at least from a mental health perspective is to establish a new routine and quickly. Right. But it's not easy because your norm is just your whole environment has changed. Um, but you have a unique perspective, right? Have living in New York, having had this happen to you in Thailand, growing up in Hong Kong, you know, and I'm just curious if you could comment on maybe how your perspective is a little bit different from perhaps the New Yorker who's not lived in Asia, has not lived through other 
public health crises? And what would you tell people, you know, about the importance of social distancing? Um, I cannot stress the, uh, the importance of social distancing, especially right now. Um, I think that this, I mean, like I said, I, I went through SARS and we had to go through the same thing. Um, and, um, we're, we're dealing with something intangible and we're dealing with something that we can't see. And we're dealing with something that is largely asymptomatic and, and, and has a huge incubation period and people are walking around. This virus is, is, is out here and we can't see it. We're not seeing sick people. They're in healthy. It's in healthy people. It's all around us. It's on surfaces for up to nine days. It's, it's, we're dealing with something that's just so much bigger than us. And what we're trying to do, I think, I think human beings have a hard time accepting that. And, um, I've, I've read a lot of comparisons to, you know, if it was a tornado, if it was a hurricane and you were told to stay inside, would you stay inside? Yes. It's, it's because that's a, there's a thing that we can see and we can feel. This is something that we can't see. And it's hard for the, for the human psychology to grasp that concept. But social distancing is, all we can do right now. And it really only works if we all do it together. And I think that it's making a small sacrifice in our personal freedom for the greater good of the public health. And if that doesn't motivate you to stay inside, I really honestly don't know what will. Yeah. And look, like you said, right, we have, for example, you you mentioned tornadoes, but tornado drills or preparedness for other things, right? That we are familiar with wherever that the we is, but for you, how did SARS impact you? Uh, I was a teenager when SARS hit and I was, um, I remember my dad, you know, asking me to do research on it and to learn what it is and learn what a virus is and learn the difference between the virus, viral infection, bacterial infection, learn, you know, stay up to date because being informed is also one of the greatest things that you can equip yourself with. Having the information, knowing how things are progressing and knowing exactly what we're dealing with is probably one of the greatest things that we can do for ourselves in a time like this. Um, I remember being very confused as a teenager, having your freedoms taken away and you know, uh, when school was being taken out of school. And I remember, you know, there were public announcements on TV teaching you how to create disinfectant solutions at home and disinfect your house every couple of hours and things like that. I remember watching and I remember feeling this overwhelming sense of, oh my God, we're all going to die. Hong Kong was a complete ghost town. There was nobody on the streets. And when there were people on the streets, everybody looked at each other with this animosity and this fear of like, do you have it? Do you have it? I'm staying away from you. Do you, you know, there was no trust in one, one another. There was very little humanity in seeing like one of the most bustling cities in the world be dead. It was, I remember feeling this like apocalyptic, you know, sense of doom. Um, and I think that stayed with me. So when this virus did pop up, um, you know, and my family in Hong Kong were alerted and they actually, you know, different people did different things, but like, you know, some people packed up and left some people, you know, my brother's businesses had to shut down. Like, you know, they were all affected very early on that I took to informing myself and learning about what we're dealing with, because this does have the capability, even if it just has the capability to affect the world this is something that we should pay attention to. And I think that's something that unfortunately, you know, like the U S government, this has been around since December, since January, but chose to not 
pay attention to it until slightly too late. But um, all we have now, honestly, is social, social distancing. That's really all yeah. we have. Yeah. And what have you, what has been your observation about what's going on around you in Thailand? How are they responding? Uh, That's not, different from the U.S. or Hong Kong. I think that, well, we're slightly, Hong Kong is very advanced with this. I've noted that, I mean, they, they flattened the curve. They handled their situation very well. And they, what their approach seems to be Hong Kong, Singapore, China, uh, South Korea, and Japan. Japan seem to be taking this concept of track, trace, and kill. They want to con- contain this virus and kill it off, find out who could be contaminated, really trace it, investigate it, and lock it down. Um, and Hong Kong successfully did that and are now dealing with a second influx of cases from travelers bringing it in back into Hong Kong. Um, but I ha- I'm so confident that the country are going to handle it well. Uh, and they, I think they are handling it well. Um, I think that in Europe and the States, they're really kind of going with this herd immunity concept because unfortunately I think they missed, um, the initial, the, the vast testing that was needed to track and trace and, and contain this virus. Um, and in Thailand, we're kind of, and and much of Southeast Asia is slightly behind that. And we're kind of getting really hit now from travelers that have come from Europe and the States and come to Thailand to kind of seek refuge or to get away from it and are infecting people here. So we're now dealing with this boom here. Um, I've noticed a couple differences for sure. I think generally speaking in Asian culture, there's a, a lot of respect, um, with authority. And in, in, I've noticed in Asian countries, when they're told to do something by the government, it's, there's a lot less resistance there. And I think that's really deeply ingrained in the culture of the people. Um, I think that, uh, you know, Thailand is struggling to deal with this too, because of the huge amount of, um, people under the poverty line here. Um, that are going to get sick, but never going to see a doctor or, you know, that cannot afford to pay for, I believe that testing for COVID-19 in Thailand is not free, but the treatment is free. So that I, I believe that's, a, that's as far as my research shows, but, um, you know, that's going to deter a lot of people from testing and, you know, every country is dealing with their own, their own things right now, but um, I think it's safe to say that this is affecting everybody on this planet. And if you think that this virus does not affect you or you're in a place where you're not affected, this affects absolutely everybody. Yeah, absolutely. And I think to call out something you said from a mental health point of view, right, the, the chest tightness and the anxiety, I think that's a really common thing right now. That I mean, I've been talking to people every day because their respiratory symptoms and cough and cold symptoms are common in general, a lot of people who have anxiety in general or anxiety and stress about the pandemic feel it in their chest, right? And then their anxiety goes through the roof because they think, okay, what if this is corona? And I think the stress is manifesting in so many different ways. But what you said is what I'm hearing very commonly, and I've even felt it myself here and there, right? So that's just one aspect, but I think I so appreciate your perspective. It's multifaceted and it's incredible that you're, you know, posting on social media. I'm sorry that you're getting 
bullied and trolled. I think that's completely inappropriate. That's a whole nother conversation, but um, <laughs> sounds like you're staying strong despite it. And I appreciate your sharing your perspective with us. It's powerful. Thank you. And I appreciate yeah. you guys having me on, honestly, having conversations like this um, and speaking to women like both of you are what gives me, you know, some strength and some energy to um, to keep doing what I'm doing. So thank you so much for taking the time and having this conversation with yes, me. Yes, thank you so much, Mia. You're incredible. welcome. <laughs> you are listening to Model Mentality. Welcome to Let's Get Clinical by Dr. Ali. In this segment, I explore connecting the dots between our guests' personal stories and the larger mental health context. You're listening to our interview with Mia Kang. Let's review Mia's story. Mia Kang is a fashion model who is half South Korean, half British, and born in Hong Kong, and is a strong advocate for diversity and body positivity, which is no surprise given her background. Mia has struggled with eating disorder symptoms for years and never received formal treatment. From an early age, she would eat her way through her emotions and was overweight. She describes being bullied and suddenly dropping her weight in her teenage years in the face of potential health issues. She was then scouted to model in her early teens and embarked on a successful career. And at its height at age 27, when she was asked to lose weight quickly for a shoot, she paused and realized how miserable she was despite the external appearance of her life. And since then, through an evolving journey and her discovery of the martial art Muay Thai, she regained balance over her mind, body, and behaviors around eating. However, more recently, given her suspected COVID-19 case, the confines of the quarantine and the inability to engage in her coping mechanisms as usual, a main one being Muay Thai, has made her feel more vulnerable to her pre-existing eating disorder. Three things stand out to me from a clinical perspective. First, her struggle with symptoms of various eating disorders. Second, her suspected COVID-19 case. And third, quarantine as a trigger for her pre-existing mental health condition. So for the first, what about the symptoms of her eating disorder? Mia has struggled with erratic eating habits and symptoms of eating disorders, from restriction to weight fluctuations, to binges, to laxative abuse, and an intense emotional experience alongside this of being all consumed by the thoughts around eating and intense feelings of guilt and self-loathing. Although she was never officially diagnosed by a health professional, and please note that my interview with her is not a diagnostic one, her struggle is consistent with what many people face in our society with anorexia, binge eating, bulimia, and other eating disorders. The difficulty is that although she had a cousin pass away from health consequences of severe bulimia, her struggles were not acknowledged nor recognized as an issue in her family because she looked normal from the outside. So let's stop right there. Does that sound familiar to some of you? I hear this a lot in clinical practice, that people may go to loved ones or trusted ones with their struggles and often come back feeling invalidated or not heard. What's the takeaway here? Since your mental health struggles are often an internal process which can be hidden, if you are in need of help, consult a healthcare provider to help guide you with what you are experiencing. Because mental health conditions have historically been stigmatized, your immediate support system around you may or may not understand or may not be sensitized to your needs. And that's why we do what we do. One other thing to call out here, Mia notes that at 27 years of age, when she was at the height of her career, she felt miserable. From the outside, everything appeared perfect, but internally she was in need of help. 
there is often this dissonance that life may appear perfect from the outside to the observer or on social media or on, or from highly perfected visual images across the media. Those perfect images do not imply internal perfection. And what is that anyway? And it does not imply a lack of human struggles. We are all human. We all struggle. Second, what about Mia's suspected case of COVID-19? Mia, like many others around the world, had symptoms that are consistent with COVID-19 disease. COVID-19 incidentally stands for Coronavirus Disease 2019 and refers to the pneumonia that develops from being infected with the novel coronavirus known to scientists as SARS-CoV-2. She was hospitalized with a suspected case of COVID-19 after collapsing in Thailand from respiratory symptoms. Although she never received her test results for COVID-19 due to the laboratories being inundated, after the administration of both antibacterial and antiviral medications and a few days in the hospital, Mia returned home to heal and was in quarantine at the time of our interview on March 22, 2020. She was beginning to recover at the time we spoke to her and was starting to get her energy back. Third, how could quarantine affect one's pre-existing mental health condition? In Mia's case, she notes that as she started to feel physically better, her eating disorder started to interfere with her thoughts. Because her usual coping mechanism of Muay Thai requires physical contact, and this was not possible at the time of her COVID quarantine, she, like many others, was getting triggered and needed to quickly adapt and find new ways to cope in the face of her routine being disrupted. What I've seen as a psychiatrist is that everyone is having a different reaction to sheltering in place. Some people with pre-existing mental health conditions have felt worse during the last months. Others have felt better. The takeaway is that those who are in treatment are able to get support if their symptoms worsen. I would encourage all of you who are in a similar situation as Mia to find new routines to cope, be it yoga, exercise videos, meditation, journaling, leaning excessively on close friends and family through virtual or distance gatherings. And if your symptoms are still overwhelming, please seek out help from a behavioral health provider in your local area or by telehealth. I have utter respect for Mia to take the time to open up with us about her mental health journey and how she continues to feel in the face of new routines and uncertainty that we all face because these struggles are universal and global. She is human and struggles with the same things that many people face with regard to their bodies. And if you follow her on social media, you will see that she has come to a place of acceptance with respect to her body. Many people struggle with eating disorders, both within and outside of the modeling profession. And we want you to understand that you are not alone, that there is power in speaking up and in asking for and receiving help. Thanks for listening to Let's Get Clinical by Dr. Ali. Please check our show notes for references and more information on this episode. As always, if you are in crisis or you think you may have an emergency, call your doctor or 911 immediately. If you're having suicidal thoughts, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255 to talk to a skilled, trained counselor at a crisis center in your area at any time. If you are located outside of the United States, call your local emergency line immediately. What you have heard on model mentality does not represent what would take place during a psychiatric assessment or an actual therapy session. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Model Mentality. If you like today's content, please subscribe to Model Mentality or wherever you get your podcasts. 
And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. Model Mentality is brought to you by Mind Studios.